Hi, and welcome to Make It Make Sense with Sareka Thanendra Dharaman, a podcast that aims to demystify the less than transparent publishing industry by talking to authors from historically underrepresented backgrounds. I believe that the more we make sense of how things work on the inside, the less we feel as though we're on the outside. Because learning from other authors, editors and agents that have made sense of their journeys should hopefully inspire many more to embark on their very own. Each week, I'll be asking a new interviewee the things they've made sense of in their careers, as well as anything they'd like to make sense of for fellow writers. Today's guest is Emma Nori, and I think it's going to be an episode you love. We talk today about money, a taboo topic in most industries, but especially in publishing. I don't think we've ever had a guest on so far that has had a more untraditional way to publishing, and Emma talks about how slow and steady can also win the race. Lastly, she speaks about why variety and flexibility is key for authors. Emma's written an impressive number of novels on a variety of topics, but as she says, they're all stories that she feels are important to put out into this world. She grew up in care homes and foster placements and says books quickly became her life as soon as she was able to read. It's also part of the reason that she'll never rest on her laurels. I hope you're as changed by this episode as I am, and I can't wait to read what else this incredible woman puts out into the world. Hi, Emma Nori, and welcome to Make It Make Sense. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi. I just said your full name because I think it's such a great... I just realised I didn't just say, hi, Emma. I said, hi, Emma Nori. I think it's a great author's name. Oh, thank you. Really? Oh, my gosh. I don't... Well, it's my husband's name, and I, it's I, I don't, I really don't like it, like oh. the name, because when people say like, how do you spell it? Because some people spell it N O R R I E, yeah, and I just, I just end up having to say to people, oh, it's Nori, like it rhymes with Lori, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because you know, also, I... interestingly enough, you also, uh, your author name on your books are not always. They're, they're M. Nor- Nori or E. L. Nori. Is that right? That is right. To the despair of my agent, I think, actually. Like, um, yeah. Okay. So the story behind that is, and it's not very wise, actually, but, you know, everything in hindsight. Um, I kind of, um, after I'd been writing for quite a long time and wanted some feedback, mm-hmm. I joined online uh, critique group that was free really great site actually called Scribophile mm-hmm. or Scribophile depending on how they pronounce it um, an American site and um, it had you know it's got free and paid options and you upload your work to complete strangers and mm-hmm. um, you know you find your tribe and they critique you and you critique them and I was obsessed with this site for about four or five years and um used to go on it all the time in my very dull admin day job mm-hmm. um and I was on there I was E.L. Nori because mm-hmm. it's the first time I'd sort of used any social you know social media thing and you know you would get people being you know weird about mm. the fact you're a woman 
Um, so yeah, so I kind of mm. went with the whole initials thing. And then I remember hearing an interview with someone who said that initials were a really good way of not being weeded out because you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so with kind of short stories and stuff, I didn't want to be judged on my gender. Um, right. So the EM kind of stuck for a while. And then that just seemed, when I had my first book out, it just seemed a natural, you know, to stay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I brought, you know, another book came out and the publishers were like, oh, EL doesn't sound very friendly. You know, I'm, okay. I'm writing for kids. So they um, were, how about, how about M? Because M right. sounds really cozy and friendly. So I was like, okay, whatever, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and then someone else at one point said oh but you're Emma so how about you have Emma you know to distinguish your non-fiction so yeah but I think my agent was absolutely head in hand she's like you just need one name so people can find you um but it's kind of a bit late now so yeah I'm out there as three different things but they are all me yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and it's also interesting because you do I mean we'll talk about this a bit later but you do also do such or you write such different genres as well so that kind of does lead into maybe it was like a precursor into how your career would start to span out but um we've already diverted from <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um <laughs> the first question that I always normally start my podcast with is what did you want to be when you were younger? Okay. So I always wanted to be a writer. Um which, you know, for some is probably a boring answer for some, but the thing about that was that I um I never said I wanted to write books. You know, mm-hmm. it was never I wanted to be a novelist. I just wanted to be a writer um and I can remember wanting to be that since I was about nine or ten um mainly because I was a huge reader um so you know I kind of um I grew up in children's homes and foster homes um and reading was just the best you know the best way of sort of avoiding my reality Mm -hmm. and you know hoping that things could turn out differently basically so I was a voracious reader Hmm. um right up until well all you know up until I was kind of 20 really but um yeah and I just knew that when I from when I was nine and ten I also started writing things just little short stories Mm -hmm. and then in my teens I was a big diary keeper Mm -hmm. um big you know confessional on the page kind of thing and went through you know a bit of awful poetry and (laughs) that's all all I wanted to do was write and I just I'd never decided at any point you know I want to write um you know I want to write novels or I want to write whatever Mm. I I wanted to communicate via the written word because when I read things I was so moved or interested or you know found a whole new world opening up to me and I just knew I wanted to do the same Mm. Um, yeah I I read a a quote from your book trust article where you wrote books quickly became my life as soon as I was able to read so I always read not quite to escape but to be given hope and I find that so interesting because that distinction of it's not just about escaping but to be given hope that there's another well you tell me actually what that meant to you rather than (laughs) me projecting to you no no but you're totally right you're right I mean it's it's so funny isn't it how often books are used or it's so easy to say that word you know Mm. we use them to escape but Mm. I never I 
knew I couldn't escape. Do you know what I mean? I had a really rough time of it and I knew mm -hmm. I would never be able to escape my reality. So I wasn't, I was never interested in huge fantasy worlds. You know, I didn't do, I mean, I did, I quite enjoyed Narnia, but I didn't go through all, you know, seven books. Mm -hmm. I wasn't interested in, in alternative realities. I was interested in contemporary, the reality that I was in, but, you know, how it could be different possibly mm -hmm. for some um so that's what it kind of meant for me it was like if I could just read about as many different worlds as many different childhoods as possible mm. as many different distances then possibly once I'm you know of age I will be able to put myself into one of those existences it doesn't you know just because I've grown up in these circumstances it doesn't mean that my life has to carry on in these circumstances mm -hmm. um I think kind of unconscious uh desire yeah, yeah, and you, by circumstances you mean growing up in foster homes and care, uh, foster placements and care homes, um, and you've spoken about how that also helped your love of reading. the The fact that you sit within children's stories was there something within that reading? Were there characters? Were there authors? Was there something that really kind of put you onto that momentum? Um, no, it's kind of one of those things that's just turned out to be quite a happy accident mm -hmm. um and in a lot of writing and in a lot of creativity I think sometimes you find yourself in a space that you almost didn't know you needed mm -hmm. if that makes sense mm. so yeah my first published book was a commission so mm -hmm. that's when someone asks you to write something mm -hmm. um, and yeah so that ended up being middle grade and it was middle grade that I, which is you know fiction for eight to 12 year olds we don't really have that category in the UK we still use it um but it you know things aren't necessarily shelved in that way and MG is very American mm -hmm. um but yeah, eight to 12 year olds and I kind of realized then and have done ever since in some capacity that I was then able to write for you know, not only my kids who are who mm. were that kind of age at the you know upper end of that age when I started out, um, but also for the books that I would have liked to have had, mm -hmm. um, presentation I would have liked to have seen, um, and it's that sort of chance of rewriting your own, you know, your own story really, mm. um, which is fantastic. But that's been a kind of happy accident, really. Which is yeah, which is lovely, and it when you say that you wanted to write out the stories that you hadn't had when you were reading or the type of representation, do you remember if you were aware that you weren't seeing yourself in those books or that that became more clear as you got older? I think when I was kind of like middle grade, so the age that I'm writing for now, mm. I wasn't aware really. I think my favourite books at the time, so I'm, um, I'm 47 um, and so the favourite books at the time that I was growing up were classics, you know, probably even classics then. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, liked, I liked to kind of, um, I mean, I say I wasn't reading fantasy. I wasn't. I was reading contemporary, but I was reading old fashioned stuff. There wasn't anything mm -hmm. being published right then. I was reading, you know, Anne of Green Gables, mm -hmm. and Ballet Shoes, Noel Stratfield and um, Pollyanna and that kind of really romanticised idyllic mm -hmm. in some way childhood um but I was quite keen on orphans I was quite keen on <laughs> you know Anne of Green Gables can find someone who finds her lovable maybe I yeah. can 
Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, Little Princess, and I mean, there's, you know, if you read The Secret Garden now, it's horrendously racist. Mm. But, you know, 1980 or whatever mm. uh yeah so I was kind of reading those sort of classics and really enjoying that view of the world mm-hmm. um and yeah I didn't really notice until I suppose until my early 30s that I hadn't you know but yeah there wasn't I wasn't reading there weren't books that I could find where there were little mixed race girls absolutely mm. not there was nothing there and I, and I kind of read all the children's classics um and then when I kind of got to 13 I became obsessed with Stephen King and I definitely wasn't rep- definitely wasn't represented in Stephen King. no um and then I kind of moved through a lot of angry young white men books kind <laughs> of yeah very kind of urban all that kind of stuff um as a nihilistic 20 year old that kind of thing um, yeah so no I didn't read I didn't read books where I saw myself um mm. at all is so lovely now to see the landscape you know has has changed yeah I was gonna ask if the the books you read your children are you more mindful about what you're bringing into their lives and what they're picking and I guess there is definitely a bigger um, selection than when we were younger Um, but are you more mindful of what you're reading to them as well um absolutely yeah absolutely And and it comes from I mean that's why the sort of being able to write non-fiction as well has been a huge, huge privilege um, for me because, you know, I'm passionate about history at school. And again, I wasn't taught much about Black British history. Um, as an adult, it's in the, you know, it's within the last five years that I've explored topics that I was interested in that I didn't really know about. Um, and also growing up in nearly all I had a few mixed households but nearly all white foster homes and children's Mm -hmm. homes I wasn't given much evidence of you know Mm -hmm. any of my cultural background heritage really um so yeah my my kids now are teens so they're 13 Mm -hmm. and 14 so the days of kind of reading to them are gone (laughs) but I, I I kind of can still get away with it with my daughter a little bit every now and then um but yeah, but definitely in terms of, and for the last sort of three or four years, really, and when they still were being read to, I was pointing them in the direction of, you know, massively wider representation. Mm. Um, and that's been really great to see. But they don't question it because it's there for them now. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, it's true because my I have a six-year-old and I'm very mindful of the books that are within his bookshelves. And yeah, I don't think we would have the same conversation when he's older because he has such a plethora of characters and cultures that he's reading into. And I think it's it's such a nice and lucky thing for them to have because when they start re- when he starts reading on his own, I think that's such a nice thing that he knows that there will be not that the problem's solved, but that there are characters out there that have similar names or or the grandma is like his grandma. I think that's yeah it's so important it's so important I've been um you know I've um answered some questions for you know book trust before and there's a campaign on you know representation and how it does how it is so important you know if you're growing up as a child as you know you may have experience of if you don't see yourself in Mm -hmm. the books that you read and the tv that you watch then you just start to think that you don't exist and that goes for you know that goes for everything that goes for femininity and notions of beauty you know you know 
white attractive, blonde's attractive, you know, the mm. darker your skin, colorism. It crosses the whole world. It's so important that you know, media reflects our society, which is a multi multicultural society, and we need mm. it everywhere. Um, mm. My um, newest book that comes out, um, it's a first and two book series that comes out next June, is um, a collaboration. So it's a book coming out with Bloomsbury called Fable House. Mm -hmm. And the original idea wasn't mine. The original idea has come from a brilliant individual called Jasmine Richards, who runs a company called Story Mix. Mm -hmm. And... um, her whole ethos for her company that she's you know built from nothing is that black and brown children should see themselves as the heroes in stories Mm. and yeah absolutely and she's kind of working I mean she works so hard and she's produced so much brilliant stuff and she her thing was to come up with kind of ideas and then find the writers to write these ideas based on you know Mm. their own own background their own heritage Mm -hmm. and um when she approached me with this story, even though it has a sort of magical adventure fantasy element, mm. which is not what I would naturally lean towards writing, um, she knew of my writing before and she knew of my background of, you know, growing up in children's homes and foster homes. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge part of this book. Mm. Um, and because of her company ethos, there was, you know, there was no way I was going to say no. I could mm. see this story so quickly. And it's just, it's brilliant now. There are, There is much more, there is much more out there. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the focus needs to move away from for children as well. Although mm-hmm. it's important to explore heritage and, you know, what's been done to us culturally, historically. But mm-hmm. it's lovely when stories can just be about brown kids having mm-hmm. a great time. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they we need that. Always... Yeah, absolutely. And not yeah. just the side not just the funny sidekick yes. or the oh my word like a side character it's just you know even now like you turn on and you know tv or yeah me and my daughter me and my daughter are starting to plow through all the christmas movies that are out there <laughs> to do that and um you know the times it's all kind of like all the brown characters as the side characters it's... yeah yeah it's amazing i we do the same and it is amazing when you're watching and you think oh well i really did watch that as i was growing up and <laughs> That was the norm. That was everything. Every movie, every show had uh, sidekicks or just an all-white cast, and that was normal. That was, you know, uh, we questioned it later, but yeah, it's um, there's definitely a change. But I agree. It, it it is also. I mean, I love reading these books to my son. They're they're interesting for me as well because I definitely didn't have them when I was growing up, and it's even just great to see that. The other day I was reading, um, I'm going to forget the title now, but it was the the story is based around an Indian wed- wedding and I'm Sri Lankan, but the food okay. that they were speaking about are quite similar to what we have at weddings and also, you know, make it home. And my son suddenly said he feels like one of the dishes that they were talking about. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't even know how to make that. But that, <laughs> that is great. Like I'm going to get on the phone with my mom and figure out how to make it. But you know, it's amazing that that also is so tangible to them. They know that that's from our culture and, um, yeah, that he suddenly felt like eating the same thing he was reading about. It just kind of made me, uh, I was amazed, actually, that that happened. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, So you've talked 
a bit about being commissioned for stories, but also obviously writing your own stories. I wondered if we could speak a little bit about um, the writing craft, because you're our first children's author, actually, that um, is on the podcast. And um, I would love to know, because I know there's also misconceptions about um, children's books being easier to write as opposed to adult fiction. <laughs> which yes. cannot be true, especially when I read to my son and I can see that I would never be able to make such a whole story within um, such few words. But um, I thought it might be interesting if we speak about how you plan out your stories um, and where you get your inspiration from. I'd really love to dive into that if we could. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so I... Um, at university, I did a film degree mm -hmm. and I later on, but, you know, many years ago now, sort of 16 years ago now, I did an MA in screenwriting. Mm -hmm. So at one point I definitely wanted to, and still do, still have ambitions to kind of write for TV in the respect that I sort of by that point, my mid thirties, I'd worked out what I really, you know, the my, the things that I thought I was good at. My strengths were character and dialogue, mm -hmm. and not inventing a whole world. Do you know what I mean? I didn't. Mm. Someone who daydreamed and saw mm -hmm. huge descriptions of beautiful rolling. You know, I couldn't conjure up a world. And still now, when I write, I can get notes back from editors saying, you know, where are we? Like, <laughs> what's what's around? What's in the room? And, yeah because I just get kind of so caught up in voice um mm -hmm. so but that grounding has been really great for writing children's definitely mm -hmm. in terms of things alive um I don't I still think even though I'm kind of like I mean I've been writing since I was yeah you know in my early teens but mm. I still think like I don't know if I'm the only person who does this but I still think I'm a little bit convinced that I do it wrong <laughs> and that there must be a right way out there that I just haven't landed on yet. Um, like, I still need to really embrace the fact that, you know, the process can be different each time. And I might be doing it right, or I might just be doing it my own way. But still, there's, a you know, 20% of my brain that's like, no, no, if you could just try this method, maybe. Um, but I'm a bit, a little bit scatty and I don't really, I don't, so I don't plot mm -hmm. is a okay. long way around saying that, but I have dipped my toe into that kind of thing. So I would say that, first of all, I think that if anyone, anyone has consumed lots of media, then mm. we kind of, we kind of know story innately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we, you know, you don't need to plot. I'm just saying that I think we all know, mm. you know, middle and end we all know when we watch a film you know when you have those kind of fal false endings mm -hmm. where you're in the cinema and you kind of get ready to kind of go kind of and mm. then you're like oh my god there's another scene and it's <laughs> yeah. like, what are you doing and it kind of comes off. um I think you know and it's the whole thing of telling a joke and you know mm. we just kind of that rhythm of a beginning middle and end it happens stuff gets worse uh, you know and then there's either a happy ending or there isn't um so and doing the film and the screenwriting really helped me with that because mm. obviously it's all about plotting mm -hmm. um and although we didn't write that many screenplays on the course we kind of studied stuff I mm. did 
you know, I kind of was definitely familiar with the hero's journey. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you each stage of it now, but I definitely, that was definitely in the learning. Um, so the first book that I did was a commission. And so that was my own book. Um, it was a commission where they were very keen on telling about Black British history through fiction, narrative fiction. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, you know, Black and Brown writers to write those stories. So it was a fantastic opportunity. And actually, my own book that had got me an agent was being rejected at that time. So it was an amazingly great distraction because mm. it kind of came in at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't written middle grade before and I hadn't written historical fiction before. Um, but they gave me a choice of, you know, um, writing about Vikings or Victorians. Mm -hmm. I chose Victor I chose Victorians because I knew that there would be a lot of, you know, material out there that yeah. I could research. Right. Um, but I was definitely, and I'd, so I'd sort of said, yes, yes, of course I can do it. That's fine. That'd be wonderful. And mm -hmm. then went off and had a private panic, you know, private panic. <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. I'm talking like proper breakdown for like six months. Like, I don't know what oh. I'm doing. Um, really didn't know what I was doing, um, but thought this is, you know, this is my chance and I can't kind right. of blow it. So um, yeah. So what I did with that plotting wise is a friend had been, doing courses via Writers HQ, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, they're on, I think they found them on social media and they do really fun and quite a lot of free courses mm. and they're very kind of sweary and they're very kind of, just really kind of fun, quite, mm -hmm. you know, reverent and lighthearted about the writing process. Um, and so someone that I'd met had sent me um, like their pl a plotting document that they had found writers hq um and that basically had 20 steps so it's like 20 points and i think it was it probably was taken from something else although i'm not sure what but that's what i used to plot um some of the circus which was the book that came out in 2019 mm -hmm. um but my plotting at that point involved so i think the first you know the first point you know point number one was literally um, you know who who's your protagonist who's your main character mm -hmm. and what are they doing and I just worked my way through that and I tried to write mm -hmm. two or three sentences for each one um, but I can remember getting to about point 10 or something and then being a bit bored and a bit confused but I couldn't see the whole thing out in my head so there was I was just a bit like oh you know what I can't be bothered with this I'm too impatient I just want to get right um started writing and and it doesn't it means I'm not a very efficient writer not plotting um mm -hmm. it does I remember kind of just getting really into the voice and the characters and I could kind of see what they were doing and that was so exciting mm -hmm. and then I kind of have to go back and do a lot of you know a lot mm -hmm. of editing yeah yeah and, yeah and a lot of filling um so and I'm trying to think of what else I've done since then because um so yeah so with the Fable House that I'm doing at the moment, Jasmine, the plotting's kind of like a joint thing. It kind of evolves, doesn't it? So yeah. um, Jasmine will send me um, like beats of what's happening mm -hmm. and then I write them. And if they're not working, because you don't really know, but if they're not working, then we have a discussion. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So yeah. in book one, there were scenes that for her, from her, from Jasmine's outline, because she outlined that book, from her outline, 
he was like okay in this chapter this 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 can happen I would write that and it just wasn't working like it was mm-hmm. flat or it mm. didn't seem funny or the way I had developed the characters and the voice and all the characterization was mine it just didn't fit so mm. then we'd go back to the drawing um but there's a real freedom when it was with someone else's structure Oh, really? Um, so that's interesting that you, it, with someone else's structure, it's more free. Yeah, it kind of, um, uh, yeah, for me, absolutely, I think. I've kind of done it done it all in different ways. And so mm-hmm. for years, I wrote short stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I think pretty much that process of writing a short story is, I could just do that, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like that's mm-hmm. where I'm very comfortable, you know, anything under sort of 5,000 words, 6,000 words. Um, I don't plot them. I just write them and, you know, I make them work in the editing. You know, I might edit which a short is, story. Which is times. also really interesting to me because I think short stories are quite difficult. I've, I've uh, written a couple of short stories and it's quite difficult to have to realize that you can't give so much depth of a character's you know their surroundings as much as you need to then keep them moving and keep characters coming in and out so it's interesting that that is easy for you because I think that's actually quite hard in order to to write a whole and like well-resolved short story it takes I think a lot more planning or maybe not planning but just um you've you've obviously written so many as well and the fact that you find that easier speaks to how you see the story in your head already. And I think that makes sense that you're someone who plots less, but has the overall story sitting there ready to write. But I'm in awe of you grown-ups. Like <laughs> I'm in awe of novelists and anyone who I think, um, and also it's just so many words. Like, I mean, there's adult themes and there's adult books I want yeah. to write for sure but when I think of I th- I don't know I just literally think of something like you know 70 90 100,000 words and it makes me quiver like <laughs> I don't know how novelists do it and especially novelists who write for adults like because it's so rich and it's so mm. immersive and you've got such a huge world so because to me the best short stories are always like a moment mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like, mm-hmm. I remember reading a really great Stephen King book, um, Dance Macabre, where he breaks down loads of different fiction, horror fiction. And one of his quotes is something about a short story is like a kiss and a novel is like a marriage. (laughs) And it's like, and it's just always really struck me as Mm. so true because a short story is kind of intensity. You know, you know that to be successful, you need, you know, you're really looking at a limited character, you know, limited characters, location really unless you're you know the goddess like Alice Monroe and you can just do whatever you like yeah. um you know generally and although I've written heaps of short stories actually for me only a handful really work mm-hmm. um, yeah so it's it's kind of I think maybe what we find easy is what we're used to isn't it if that mm. makes sense mm. um because for me you've got to have such yeah I mean I, I, you know, writing a book for adults is what I feel like I could do when I grow up. Like, <laughs> it just seems massive. Like, um, I think I like, I think just even talking about this with you now, I think I'm having a little bit of a revelation about 
how I actually do quite like to write within the bounds of some structure. Mm, mm. Like not a lot, but if someone just goes go, Mm-hmm. I don't know. Which which is what for me is interesting because I think the the plus of having eighty thousand to a hundred words is you can just write everything out, and then you have to go back in and tighten and you know just take out passages and passages. So to already have that structure in place and that to write so refrained and so succinct, which is really even with a novel that's 80,000 words, you hope you're just leaving the best of everything in and not, you know, overriding things. You're simplifying big themes because, I mean, there's books that I read to my son that I get emotional about because it's such a beautiful story and, you know, there was a beautiful moral or there's a theme that you didn't expect to be written about so completely in such a small book really and I think that's what I always find amazing about children's authors is that you're able to convey such important messages to children but that I mean that's why it's such a lovely space to be working in like the 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 book that's coming out next year is so personal to me which is wild when it's not my original idea but I think possibly that allowed me some just freedom with the themes and with the character because it was like it's kind of a separate to me a little bit so I was able to put everything into who these characters are as opposed to necessarily stressing out about what happens next if that makes sense Um, I would love to go on to the three things that you wanted to help make sense of, because I think they're probably the best three things that I've had in one go and things that I think authors sometimes also a bit conscious to speak about. So, um, the first thing that you wanted to help make sense of was to not give up your day job. I think, you know, um, it's a woman thing and it's a art thing and it's a cultural thing, but we just don't talk about money. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about money and we should talk about money really. Um, so I am, yeah, I'm not from a background of money. Um, it's very difficult. I think like I don't write full time. Um, I write four days a week and I work three days a week. So I do work seven days a week. Um, I would really love to not work seven days a week, but at the moment, that's what I do. Um, And I don't have a well-paying job. I'm a TA in um, an FE college. Um, I don't know, you know, I I kind of, I kind of love and hate it. It's very badly Mm. paid, but I absolutely love hanging out with teenagers who are just Mm -hmm. crazy, Um, you know, species it keeps me (laughs) and you know tells me what's coming up for my own teens and I I still yeah it's like forewarned is forearmed right um quite alarming um but yeah but even if you know even if you're you know have a successful career you know there's lots of writers children's writers I know that were doctors and lawyers and Mm. you know proper, proper careers and possibly if you're supported by you know a partner then you could give up Mm -hmm. your day job I think I read I either read somewhere or it's a kind of you know one of those urban myth things but someone said something like don't give up your day job until 
your advance is like five times your salary or something like that okay Uh, yeah um I just think it's really easy Uh, and also I mean I think we're going to move on to this aren't we but that whole thing about how I got started was just Mm -hmm. I didn't have a big shiny start so I didn't Mm -hmm. have any you know it must be amazing when you get that whole million dollar six you know Mm -hmm. seven figures six figures every single rights country movie rights (laughs) thing woohoo but I still probably wouldn't think to do that in the first place to give up your day job because you're just switching your entire life on a whim, on a dream that may or may not happen. You know, get a deal, obviously your book is going to come out. If it's a massive deal, obviously they will put the marketing and publicity behind that to make sure your book is visible. Um, but you know in the children's world the the money I think is quite different to the adult fiction world um and I just think it's worth sort of seeing how that first book goes and I haven't had it personally but I know a lot of friends have had real problems with that whole second book syndrome which seems to be a thing um and also that just that excitement to start with it's it's kind of like you just need to take a breath and consider kind of Longevity, really I think mm. um rush to that whole full-time author thing and it's things like also your jobs you know consider what your job has given you in terms of your creativity in mm. terms of the impact it's had on your creativity so for me I- I've not had a career that I enjoyed particularly I kind of was in admin for quite some time the job that I'm in now I, I enjoy and I chose it um through lockdown because I kind of wanted to be of a lot more help to people so I've only been at the college for like two years but before that I was at a university in admin um like 16 years and it was a slow death um the plus side of that was that when I had my lunch breaks and you know that kind of stuff I was dying to work I was dying to write Mm -hmm. trying to do something else and it left me headspace to do that because it Mm. wasn't a demanding career Mm. Mm. and you make the point that which I think I didn't realize that also when you look at something like a six-figure deal or seven-figure deal that doesn't come all in one go that's an advanced payment doesn't mean that you're getting that money in bulk yeah yeah because you just don't know when that money's coming in so okay so for example so my first book was Son of the Circus, and um, that was £5,000 I got offered for that. At the time, and, you know, now, I was like, woohoo, that's amazing. That came, so I have to give 15% of that to my agent, Mm -hmm. and then I have to pay 20% tax on that. And that also comes in three instalments. So you get a third on signature of the contract, third on delivery and acceptance of the manuscript. Delivery and acceptance are different things. You can deliver something and it might get accepted. Mm. And then a third on publication. Mm-hmm. But bearing in mind, publishers are normally working 18 months to two years in advance. Um, and bear in mind, I'm doing that book on top of my day job and that mm. book takes me seven months to write. I mean, that's not huge bucks, is it? That's what I'm taking that job and I'm not getting it all in one go um but yeah it's just really worth um not rushing to yeah 
you know, I've gone from sort of paying off debt to being back in debt massively just because I'm waiting on a payment for something, which has meant, you know, credit cards and trying mm. to borrow a family and absolutely broke again. Um, it's kind of, there is quite a lot of hustle. And I think you're right. Authors don't speak about, I, I understand why people wouldn't speak about it or don't want to speak about it, but it's, it's kind of, I feel like part of the issue with the industry that there's so much that just goes unsaid and it's common behavior or it's just part of the process and more people don't speak about things, then it just continues on rather than having a look at, is that really fair or is that the right way to do it? Um, Absolutely. And to try and shift it. Yeah. A few few years ago, did you see the whole publishing paid me hashtag on Twitter? Yeah. And that, yeah, there was, I wasn't, I didn't notice it at the time, I don't think, but since people draw my attention to it and that, and it is, you know, it is important to have those sort of conversations and, you Mm. know, men getting paid more than women, you know, white writers getting paid more uh, or, you know, deals. I mean, publishing is quite skewed, isn't it really in terms of, no, just even massive, huge deals. But how about sustaining, you know, a writer over their third, fourth, fifth? It's just obsessed with youth and obsessed with the new. That kind of uh, leads us nicely to the next point that you wanted to make. That um, for you, slow and steady can work just as well as the splashy debut, because as you just said, publishing is a little bit fo- highly focused on uh, a debut author. Um, and the money that's put behind a debut author and their their launch. Um, for you, you, your first story was commissioned. How yeah. how does that um, compare for you? Um, I think it just meant that immediately I oh I just I had I didn't you know the blinkers were off kind of thing. Mm. What was great about it is that getting the commission totally absorbed and refocused my disappointment about my book not selling Mm -hmm. on submission I I literally didn't even have time to think about it I didn't have time to mourn the fact that that book didn't happen Mm -hmm. because I was like oh my god I need to write a book in a genre I've not Mm. genre and an age range I've never written in you know and I don't even read in these genres I've got no idea what I'm doing um so and obviously, as anyone would who wants to be published traditionally, it was I was just so thrilled. I was thrilled at being asked. But it did mean, you know, I would think I was book three in a series and books one and two were published by well-known children's writers and no one had ever heard of me. So it wasn't um, it's not an educational title, but you'd be hard pressed to go into a bookshop to find it on a shelf. Do you know what I mean? Like I've never seen it in a bookshop. I've seen it in a library, which is amazing. Um, and I, I love libraries. Um, but it was, it was that thing of, um, I think it took, I think it was over a year before I had an email from a teacher, you know, the sort of email that totally makes your day. Um, but it was, you know, I didn't, you know, very few reviews, all that kind of stuff. So I had the pleasure of sort of, it was just, thing of you when you're just working hard and steady and no one really notices mm. uh, but it did kind of lead to other things so I just kind of kept my head down and knew that I always would write whether being traditionally published or not because I always had written mm-hmm. because it's how I enjoy you know making sense of the world and working mm-hmm. out what I think and what I feel 
So it was all, it was kind of nice in the way that I didn't have any massive pressure. Like I didn't, it, I didn't need it to be a success or do anything. It was part of a series. I was like, it's like being on stage with some dancer and I'm not even a backing dancer. Do you know what I mean? I'm like behind the backing dancers. Like I really haven't got to worry if my skirt <laughs> falls down, like my hair falls out. Um, yeah, so it was lovely because it was, you know, an original book that I'd written. It was my idea. Yeah. I was pleased with it. I can see there's things wrong with it now, but I was really pleased I'd done what I'd set out to do. Mm-hmm. And then to hear, you know, six months later to hear from a couple of readers saying they really enjoyed it was really lovely. And it kind of meant that now that the one that comes out is coming out next year, which is, you know, splashier, mm-hmm. if I'm sticking commas around the word splashier, <laughs> um, it kind of means that all that's quite new and mm. a novelty, but I'm also not swept away by it in a way that you might be if that had been my first experience. If you start off and everyone's like, it's like the whole moment, isn't it? When you're, um, you're like, you know, glasses and your hair up or whatever. And then you suddenly take your glasses off and shake your hair and everyone's like, oh my God, wow, you're amazing. Like, <laughs> the makeover what? moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've had my makeover moment and it's like, I'm going to have my makeover moment, but it's like, no, no, I've, I've, just, I've been here the whole time. Just like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, I, I'm glad because, and I'm really glad the book I didn't, that didn't sell on submission mm. because it was really personal, really mm-hmm. personal. As a lot of first novels are, it was, um, I still think it could be, I'd love an editor to work with me on it. I really mm. just want to make it the best it can be, whether it sells or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of do it justice. But if that had come out and, you know, done well or done badly, either way, I would, the themes in it and everything, it's all about being in care and mm. all of that would just been my first contact with the publishing world and with readers and with writers. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that those things have come out more organically mm. you know what I mean like mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. book being a Victorian you know about Pablo Fanke and Victorian circus no one's asking me you know how was it to be in a Victorian circus like I wasn't, I wasn't there um but the focus is the work not not me yes um, yeah that makes sense and so, yeah but when next you know if things happen with this in June next June mm. and if people are like oh can you talk about your experiences mm. I'll be ready um, I'll be ready then it wouldn't be such a mm. you know a shock. I kind of have had enough um, experience under my belt to for that not to kind of yeah I don't know for it just to be you know what it is mm. because that's a that's that's one of the I recently read an article actually in Australian publishing there is a currently I think there's a theme of books that hold a lot of trauma um, within the story and what that impact is for the author and what I hadn't realized and what I hadn't thought of was that also for the author when they're opening themselves up to conversations from readers coming back to them and sharing their own experience that you know the book has triggered and it's a lot it's a lot to as an author to then have that other the you know on the flip side of when that book is out there in other people's hands you also are then an open vessel for people to also put their their experiences into and yeah maybe that's also something that um would have been very different if that was what had happened with your first novel yes absolutely Mm. 
you know when things touch on the personal um it can yeah it can get very difficult you do have to be prepared in a way that as is exactly as you've said you know it might not just be you talking about it it might be when readers contact you and say you know to happen to me or and you just have to kind of be aware of the impact that can have on you you know either constantly thinking about that stuff or uh, readers may see stuff in there that you didn't intend or you weren't aware of so there yeah there definitely needs to be a level of kind of self-awareness and self-care so when you say that your next book that's coming out in June and in inverted commas uh the splashier um book that will come out then (laughs) what is what is the difference then what is it that makes that then the splashier better commas book for you oh I'm so excited about it um (laughs) so so splashier splashier means um so it's with it's with the probably the biggest publisher that I've been published Mm with so it's with Bloomsbury um and it was a preempt so um I they signed it and they signed you know one of those you know they signed a lot of money um based on the sample so I'd mm-hmm. written like three chapters mm-hmm. um but from a full outline from you know because I was Jasmine for story mix so um yeah and they um they're putting a lot of energy and time and passion behind it um so and I don't think out of everything anything else I've written there's been an equivalent so far so um yeah it's um yeah you know they have like lead titles and super lead titles and all that kind of stuff so I think they want to make it a big a big summer thing next year which is terrifying frankly but also <laughs> but also, also so great so really exciting like I yeah. I could write characters forever and I just oh. yeah having a whale of a time writing book two now and kind of forgetting that that is yeah that will also be out so we'll see and I just mm. yeah it's um yeah it's I it, it will feel and does already feel just because of um okay so it's all sorts of things like conversations you're part of does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah um you know meetings you're invited mm-hmm. to uh, you're consulted about there's just a big difference what, um, what would the, I, I know what you're referring to, but is there something you could share more specifically for people that to understand what the difference is in the meetings that you're sitting in when you are published okay. in this way versus? Um, yeah, so um, I think I, I, you, you, you get like a specific marketing person mm-hmm. or publicity person who will contact you Um to you know to do things and um I had a questionnaire to fill in Mm -hmm. before um which was you know things that I would be willing to do or willing to try um so they kind of know what you're up for Mm -hmm. Uh, don't think I'd come across that before Mm. um and this time around um and this is the first time ever I was involved in cover conversations mm-hmm. which is like blows my mind with excitement um and you know it's not like I get final say or anything like that but just to be involved in those conversations there's a lot more um yeah it just feels much more involvement 
Um, But I think each publisher also works differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it just feels feels very different. Mm. Um, And each each on each book. I mean, that's that's what's been brilliant about working on so many different things across so many different publishers is that sort of insight into, you know, how differently things work and how people Mm -hmm. do different things. Um, has been a real eye-opener yeah Mm. and it's it's I I don't think we've had someone who's had kind of you've described it well where you say slow and steady can work just as well as this flashy debut because I don't think I've I've spoken yet to someone who's had it happen you know in this way and um, it's amazing that you still wrote and were able to write amazing stories and books I wanted to kind of list out we've touched on a few of them and this is by no means all of them but I want to list out that you've written short stories for adults that have been placed in competitions and anthologies that have been shortlisted and longlisted your first novel we've spoken about was a middle grade novel Son of the Circus published in 2019 you were commissioned to write two short stories as part of the Homecoming anthology um you've written for Penguin's Extraordinary live series which was um the Lionel Messi football legend series and the life of Nelson Mandela we spoke about happy here that was published by Knights of um and as well as the collection the place for me stories of the Windrush generation which features 12 stories inspired by the people of that generation drawn from the black cultural archives and this year you've been involved in script writing for EastEnders and uh, working with Alison Hammond on Black in Time, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like I, that is like such... I said, I'm quite tired. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a between 2019 and right now. That is such a wealth of storytelling that you've put out there, which is amazing. And I think that speaks to what you mean of slow and steady can work just as well as a splashy debut. That's within those few years you've put all that together and then now you're coming out with a fable house next year um how does that feel for you to have that listed out in that way lovely lovely and and a bit embarrassing like I'm I was like like it was that weird thing of um yeah a bit embarrassing but really lovely and it's that thing of that whole thing of I have been on a bit of a treadmill, actually. So I mm. haven't necessarily stopped to kind of go, well done. Because um, mm. it has been, you know, but that's fine. You know, come the end of the year, I will be patting myself on the back. <laughs> um, but I think also because traditional publishing is such a different beast mm-hmm. to just writing for yourself, you know, you're writing, you know, you can only get an agent if an agent thinks a project will sell. Mm-hmm. So once a writer gets an agent, I mean, it does remain the highlight of my, you know, career so far. <laughs> Once you get an agent, you're like, okay, great. So someone else, other than friends and family, you know, thinks I can string a sentence together and they think <laughs> they can sell it. So that's, you know, that's great. That's life, life goals yeah. right there. Yeah. And then, and then if you don't sell on sub, it's a really weird, different kind of heartbreak and letdown. Um, but if you get feedback on your writing, you know, I had amazing feedback on the book that didn't sell, then you do, your heart does get a little bit hardened, not in an awful way, just in a way that you stop focusing on quality. You can stop focusing on, oh, I am good enough, in inverted commas. This just isn't 
marketable in a way for right now. So then you're, you switch, you, your kind of brain and heart switches from loving it with kind of, you know, rose-tinted spectacles to being a bit more pragmatic mm. and a bit more, you know, kind of realistic about things. Um, but it doesn't mean it's any less rewarding. It just means you kind of have to adjust a little bit. So mm. you know, people had read enough of my writing, not out in the world, but editors and agents mm. and things that I got offered jobs. So, mm-hmm. you know, the short stories are like, you know, we're, we're part of a collection. Would you like to be involved? I just made myself say yes to everything mm. at the at the risk of burnout, but just to say yes to everything to find out what I enjoyed, what mm-hmm. I did you know, did and didn't like, um, before I know that you know I want to be doing this forever. So hopefully, mm. in a year or two, I can start doing my own projects, developing my own projects, seeing what happens with those. Um, so yeah, you know, kind of it's refusing to pigeonhole yourself mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah which is which is your third point and that was variety and flexibility is key and to work out what you love and I think that's it, you've almost had I don't I don't want to say it's lucky because I don't know a full <laughs> a perfect publishing career but it's lucky that you have in my eyes had so many different opportunities and also credit to you for saying yes to things like son of the circus where you then went back and had a panic attack that you don't know then how to write for that genre just yet (laughs) but that's that's part of it right so you've been given these opportunities but you've also said yes you haven't shied away from it and that's yeah I think it's just I think it's just the way I was made if that (laughs) makes sense so you, you know you develop a certain kind of resilience growing up in care and um I I've lived on my own since I was 16 with absolutely no you know parental involvement or involvement from social services or anything so I always had to just forge my own way mm-hmm. and that that meant loads of mistakes loads of false starts um but I kind of am a trier do you know what I mean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I've just applied the same mentality to this really probably unconsciously mm. um some you know some of it has to has probably been a bit of a people pleasing thing I'm sure I've just mm-hmm. been like oh yes yes you know, you've asked me let me see if I can do it um <laughs> but I think you have to go through that to you know to kind of grow and realize what you will and won't do and you know kind of yeah it's all probably you know 20 years later than I would have loved to ideally because there's lots of stories to tell right but mm. it's better later late than never (laughs) yes yes and I think from even the writers that or the authors I speak to on the podcast who have had published books or about to debut also feel a sense of imposter syndrome even though they've gotten themselves through all these hurdles there's so much (laughs) there's so much experience that comes out of everything that you've said yes to and I think that's where there's a lot of learning when you you know step out and put yourself on some sort of vulnerable curve where you can say okay I'll take that that commission and I'll do that and you've created a story that's here for readers I always struggle with I think because of how I got published I think I will always struggle with you know have I earned my place here kind of thing um a lot of that is going to be you know from my background um you know a lot of people won't have they might have the same thing, but coming from a different, you know, coming from a different background, um, you know, parents who put too much pressure on them, for example, or successful siblings or 
Um, but I think at the end of the day, really, it helps when you're proud of what you've done. So it really, I am not, I just think we need to really examine what you want out of the experience of being published in whatever way. So, you know, do you want fame and riches and notoriety? And if so, you know, whatever it is that you want, own that, you know, accept it and acknowledge it and don't feel bad for it. Some people want, you know, want a million pound deal and to be at the top of every bestseller list. And that's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think it does help to for you to know yourself you're looking for and what success looks like to you um because and also just to not rest so I would never rest on my laurels I will always want to keep writing and exploring and challenging myself and I know that some things I find easier than others and I also know my limitations and I know that you know linguistically and stylistically I'll never I could never be I just can't be as good as some of the writers that I adore um, but it doesn't mean I can't be the best Emma writer I can be. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's that thing of just being aware that we can always, always learn if we're up for that. Um, and yeah, just trying to be proud of something that you've done. So at the end of the day, a story or a book or a character or a section of dialogue, you just think, you know, am I pleased with it? Do I like, it? does it move me or does it convey what I was trying to say? You know, does it speak to the depths of what's in my heart? Um, we already all know, and it's just really deeply knowing that publishing is not about quality. So for a long time, it really, that really, that's something that I really struggled with. You know, I just thought that whole good enough, you know, is, 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 is subjective. And I know brilliant writers who've given up or got disheartened or not been published and they're, you know, amazing writers with amazing things to say, but you do need other skills to be out there in the world. You need to have a bit of a thick skin and, you know, set the ego aside and be willing to accept criticism and other people's opinions whilst at the same time really holding on to what you want to do and tell and what you think is true and not compromising with everything. If you enjoyed this episode of Make It Make Sense with Sarinka Thanendra Tharaman, I would love if you would rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to help others find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Make It Make Sense.